Hello and welcome to the Harvard Data Science Review podcast. I'm Liberty Vittert, feature editor of the Harvard Data Science Review, and I'm here with my co-host and editor-in-chief, Shelley Knight. For centuries, religion has played an important role in shaping our society as a whole and determining the basis of life for many. Whether it's several daily prayers, Sunday church, or the determination of what time you eat, religion dictates day-to-day life for many. This week, we talk with Dr. Harold Koenig, psychiatrist and faculty member at Duke University, and Dr. Melissa Deckman, CEO of the Public Religion Research Institute and author of the popular book, Women and Politics, to determine religion's relationship to health and civic society. Could religious practices deeply increase your quality of life or even save it? Researchers Dr. Deckman and Dr. Koenig are on the ground floor of answering just that. How is it that we sort of qualify what religious coping and prayer is in a scientific way? You know, how do we measure something like how religious are you? How do you even conceptualize whether someone's more religious than someone else or or what that even means in terms of spirituality or religious? How do you quantify that in any way? So I think we look at religion, at least in survey research, through a number of mechanisms. So we tend to ask at Public Religion Research Institute, where I work, um, what Americans' own self-identified religious affiliation is. And so we ask Americans, do you consider yourself to be Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, Muslim, other maybe minority faiths, faiths that aren't quite as represented in the U.S. population. And we also ask Americans, do you consider yourself to be just nothing in particular? Um, So that really depends on Americans themselves in our surveys identifying who they are. Um, We also ask about religious behaviors, things like how often do you attend church? How often do you pray? Are you a member of a church? And also the importance of religion to, to yourself. Do you feel like it's one of the most important things in your life? Do you think it's important, but along with other things, or just something that's not important in particular? Uh, So those measures, I think, together give us a better picture into just how religious Americans are in terms of their religiosity, but also maybe the flavors of the particular religious faith traditions that they carry with them as, as well. You know, my colleagues asked me the same question. They said, you can't measure this. And I thought, you know, well, we do that for other things like depression and social support and other psychological and social behaviors. So why can't we measure this? You know, I was a student at that time and I got a lot of negative feedback on that. But just as you said, I just started asking people questions about how often they attended religious services and how often they prayed, how often they read their religious scriptures, and I found an intrinsic religiosity scale that someone had developed in the 1970s, and I thought it was pretty good. It was 10 questions that asked about to what extent is the person's religious beliefs the um, motivation for all that they say and do, and I thought that was a good scale, so I've used that, and by golly, you know, you can measure, you can quantify it, and you can look at then, once you've quantified it, then you can look at all of the other psychological, social, and physiological measures that one might be interested in, in looking at this connection between religion and health. Now, let's say you figure out how to measure people, how religious they are, 
the next challenge is how do you get people to respond to you? And the most important, how do you ensure the data you have are representative? You can easily argue, people say, I don't care about religion. I'm not going to answer these questions. Would you be then, you'll be overly representing the people who already care about religion. How do you get the general picture and how do you deal with this uh, kind of selection bias issue here? I would say from my end, as a social scientist, I'm particularly interested in how religion impacts attitudes on politics and culture. I think I would point to the body of decades of social science survey research that shows these trends are often not just found in our own data, but in similar surveys that are done by other social scientists. So, for example, one longstanding survey that we've relied on is the general um, social science survey, the GSS survey, that tends to be used across disciplines. So political scientists use it, sociologists use it. And over time, with very consistent measures of how we draw these random samples, we have found pretty consistent, I think, findings. And I think it leads us to be more confident in what we're actually measuring. But I think to your point about there is this concern about social desirability bias sometimes, that sometimes maybe respondents will say, well, it's not really good to say you're not religious. So they might admit to being a certain religion when in fact they're not really all that religious at all. And maybe we can talk about this a little bit later, but I think one of the fascinating trends in American religion is looking at the massive growth of people who are religiously unaffiliated. But I do think that we have decades of really solid social science research probability-based samples that have been drawn that really kind of show these patterns across different surveys. So I think we're pretty confident that we're getting at those measures pretty well. One thing about these large surveys is that these are all self-reported and usually nobody's watching over people. It's not like an interviewer-administered questionnaire. People are just self-completed. And these questions are buried within hundreds of other questions. So, you know, I, I, I think we're getting pretty accurate information. And uh, But it it's always an issue. You know, people uh, will tend to report what they, what the interviewer, what they think the interviewer wants to hear. And so for, for my my surveyors that I supervise, I actually encourage, you know, you have to train them, of course, to say, ask the questions. If it's an interviewer administered questionnaire, you have to train them on how to do that. You know, you don't ask the questions in a way that would solicit a positive response. I've, I've even told them to actually ask the questions in a way that would elicit a negative response. Like, how often do you go to church? How often do you pray? You know, just just like, heck, you know, this isn't something that's Eddie would want would want to do. But in any case, you know, that is a big issue. You want to get accurate information, particularly if you're doing quantitative research. I would also add, I think eight years ago or so, PRI did an experiment where they were asking about religious attendance and they did it through some phone surveys, but then they did it online. And they found that online Americans were more likely to be, I guess, honest about the extent to which they uh, revealed they went to church services because there's maybe more pressure when you're talking to a live human being. Well, what we have found at PRI and other uh, polling, polling firms that really do these representative samples, uh, we work with Ipsos, which has a knowledge panel that randomly selects Americans and provides them now with computers to fill out a survey if they don't have uh, those, those computers at home. And so they're pretty much generally done on online. Um, and so I think what one thing we have found is there's a tendency now to report that you're going to church less often. So my guess is that 
the method by which you do it, phone or online, might also impact you know how honest people are. Talking to a person, sometimes I think there's more definite um, social pressure to say the, the thing that you think is socially desirable. Let me let me do a quick follow up uh, before I turn to uh, to Liberty because this topic. Obviously, it's so important. There's the three elections, right? 2016, 2020, 2022. You can argue that all of them are quite off. Depends on you know how you view it. And I think there's uh, eventually we kind of know the truth, so you can check. And and so for me, I I understand the social science is so hard. I do a little bit of myself as well. I, I understand you look at a pattern, look, but you know if there's something persistent over the time, it's biased. You may not be able to pick that up just because it's consistent. So the question I have for you is that you mentioned, for example, the church attendance. Are there some studies don't rely on people self-reporting? I guess presumably church attending can be measured in some more objective ways. If you work with a church, look how many people show up. Is there any study of that sort kind of provide additional support of these um, reliability of data? Well, I don't know of any offhand, but I do know that there are membership numbers, right? So you can go to denominational offices and ask people, you can ask the denominations themselves to self-report how many people are on your rolls and how many people are attending. But to be honest, I don't know off the top of my head if I could kind of say how our data compares with um, some of those self-reports. And then even then, there might be, I think, um, reasons why some denominations might want to over-report the number of members they have as well. But I would say one trend over virtually all uh, religious denominations in this country is that the number of Americans who are members of churches is really declining. And we're seeing that picture both from self-reports and from a lot of these major denominations. You know, Dr. Jackman, you talked about how the amount of people in religious affiliations is declining. You talked about how often people go to church might be declining. But in terms of Dr. Koenig, your research with health outcomes, what are the findings? Is being religious, being spiritual, are there mental health benefits? Are there physical health benefits? To answer your question, a lot of this is coming out in the third edition of the Handbook of Religion and Health. So that's going to be a massive text. It's about 600,000 words, 2,000 pages, and it reviews the latest research across 34 different health outcomes, including public health, public policy. What it basically summarizing things is that religious involvement, not so much spiritual involvement, because a bunch of studies are now showing that being spiritual but not religious does not seem to correlate with good health outcomes, but being distinctively religious is related to virtually everything, every aspect of health you could imagine, from mental health to social health, to behavioral health, to physical health, to longevity. And the research is just growing and and larger and larger, different research groups. It's not coming out of just one group. It's coming out of different research groups from around the world, from around the United States, some of the best research groups. The Harvard School of Public Health has had numerous studies, probably a dozen studies now published in the last two years, consistently showing these relationships, taking into account social desirability, everything you can imagine, dozens of other covariates and possible confounders, 
and in correcting p-values for multiple comparisons, bone ferroni corrections, where it's thought to be conservative corrections. And they cannot get rid of, of these associations that they are finding. So when I started out in this area 35 years ago, I had no idea that this would be connected with so many different things. I mean, that's what surprised me over the years. So that's really a uh you know, fascinating to see all these connections. And I want to ask, how much would this do to, for example, maybe certain religions, people, you know, are more restricted in terms of their diets, in terms of their behaviors, you know, don't drink. I mean, when you say uh, about, you know, control the confounding factor, do you control those things? Is there an additional benefit of being religious or is because the religious practice itself give you a better life habit, you know, not do all this things you shouldn't do. How do people tease these things out? Part of the mechanism by which religious involvement affects all of these health outcomes has to do with behaviors, has to do with self-control. That is a major mechanism by which religious involvement affects health outcomes. Yes, religious people live healthier. They're less likely to smoke cigarettes. They're less likely to drink, to become addicted to to drugs and alcohol, all of that has consequences, especially among young people as they're planning their entire lives ahead of them and their education. So yes, behaviors are a major mechanism, of course, the social support, the social interactions, as well as the cognitive aspects, the hope, the meaning, the purpose in life. All of these are part of the mechanism by which religious involvement does what it does. Right. Uh, again, a quick follow-up. So if somebody wants to study if these mechanisms themselves are the cause, is it possible to find people who are not religious but somehow have these practices as a way to control and to show the additional benefit of being religious, if that's even possible? You know, not to my knowledge. That's a great question. You know, if you could find people who are able to you know, who lived healthy and didn't smoke and just had sex with their spouse. And, you know, you just it's hard to find these people unless they're religious. It's just hard to find them. Certainly they exist and they're going to experience health outcomes as well, you know, that are much better than the general population. Now, the question is, what about the beliefs? Does the belief itself make a difference? Does the content of belief make a difference. Um, and uh, to, to, what, to what we know, meaning and purpose in life is in part dependent upon belief and hope and optimism versus pessimism is related to what people actually believe. And some of the strongest relationships with religious involvement have to do with these connections with meaning and purpose, hope, optimism. So it'd be t another tough study to do, but but worth trying, <laughs> worth trying. Does that suggest, I know this might be even a controversial question, does that suggest that a certain religious practice do better than others because they have a different kind of belief? Some believe God, some don't. Oh, is there any study trying to, to say which religion is doing better? Uh, this question to both of you. You know, 
there are a lot of commonalities. If you look at the different world religions, it's kind of amazing how many commonalities there are in terms of the beliefs. Yes, there are differences, certainly, you know, significant differences in the belief, but, but there's also a lot of commonality there. As you said, you literally cannot compare people across different religious groups. You, you, you might be able to compare denominations like within Christianity, but even within Christianity, there are these self-selection effects that affect the results. But, but it, this self-selection effect makes it very difficult to determine whether there's one particular religion, even denomination within Christianity. And if you go beyond Christianity, if you try to compare beliefs Christians with Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists, it becomes even more complicated because the majority religion, people who are members of the majority religion tend to do better because minority religions are in the minority. They tend to be discriminated against. And so you would have to use a religious measure that would be common that you could actually study people in their natural environments and if you try to do that, then you, the meaning of different religious practices is different in different religions. And so even within Christianity, if you've got Protestants and Catholics, Catholics are big. It's a big thing attending religious services every week. Protestants, it's reading the Bible. So you have to, you actually have to weigh different measures differently depending on the particular faith tradition. Again, it's it's virtually impossible to compare people from different religions, but there is a lot of commonality between religions, particularly in terms of moral and ethical values, which are very important in terms of the health outcomes. I can't speak to individual health outcomes. That's not really what we do at PRI, and I'm a political scientist, but I can speak a little bit to, I think, the influence of religiosity and civic trust and civic engagement. And so example, um, I think about the work of Robert Putnam, who is a sociologist and political scientist at Harvard. He's written this uh, kind of classic book called Bowling Alone, which looks at the health of our civic institutions. His data takes us to maybe about the turn of the century, this past century, 2000. And Americans used to be much more likely to join organizations, including religious organizations. And studies show that those sorts of institutions are important for uh, building social capital. And Political scientists know that people who are engaged in religious life tend to vote more. They tend to be more active as volunteers in their communities. And so there is a concern as Americans become less religious in terms of being members of, of churches. For example, Gala tracks um, membership in religious institutions, whether you belong to a church or a synagogue or a mosque. And for the first time in 2020, Gallup found that fewer than half of Americans say they actually belong to a religious institution. And I think many people are very concerned that that's one very strong attachment point that many Americans have with each other in building social capital. And so some people are concerned about the health of our democracy because people are less, I think, engaged in religious life. That's really interesting. Um, and thinking on that, are there specific groups of individuals that are more likely to receive benefits from being part of religion, whether it be for health outcomes or Dr. Dachman, whether it be for sort of civic participation, whether they be old or young or cultural differences? Are there groups that sort of receive more help that way? 
I can't speak to to groups that receive more help per se, but I do know generationally speaking, if we look at religious trends, um, older Americans are far more religious. They're more likely to identify with a religion. They're more likely to be engaged in politics. They're more likely to pray. They're more likely to do those sorts of, of uh, religious behaviors um, that really lead to better, I think, benefits overall. But one of the things that's most striking in terms of religious trends, if you look at younger Americans, say, age 18 to, to 29. So those are Americans who are um, young adults. They're just coming into their own. Um, we find at PRI, for example, about 35% to 40% are religiously unaffiliated. And the trend data are showing um, as those Americans get older, they're less likely to become religious because, for one thing, there's all these other countervailing forces in American society. But we have now, I think, for the first time, even though people that disaffiliate from religion tend to choose, they've, they've been raised in one way or they identified as, some, as, as a certain religion when they were growing up. Um, we now have a situation where older millennials who are not religious are having children. And so that passes on this being unaffiliated. So um, I've heard that uh, referred to as being these are folks who are cradle nuns. So they're born without religion. So it's less likely that they'll be religious over time. And so demographers, I think, are pointing to a future in American society, even by, say, 50 years from now, where fewer than half of Americans will be um, Christian. Um, and historically, we've been an overwhelmingly Christian nation. Upwards of maybe 30 to 40 percent of Americans will have no religious affiliation at all. And what that means for our culture, our society, our politics um, is still kind of up in the air. Exactly. Older adults tend to be more religious. African-Americans, the effects seem to be stronger in African-Americans and Hispanic-Americans, minority groups. In fact, if you look at the effects on longevity among African-Americans, religious attendance is associated among whites with an average seven years extension in longevity, whereas among African-Americans, it's 14 years. So the average age of death of an African-American who does not attend religious services is 66 compared to the African-American who attends at least weekly or more, where the average age of death is 80. So there's that 14-year differential. So, you know, certain groups do seem to benefit. Women, the effects tend to be stronger in women than in men. But again, they're present in both groups, but a little stronger among women. Women are more likely to be involved in religious activities. Certainly the poor, you know, the poor are more likely to be involved in activities in religion because it's a coping behavior for people who don't have other resources oftentimes to be able to make sense of the the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune that life tends to throw at us. So just again, a, a quick follow-up in terms of mechanism there, is it because, you know, by being part of the a religious, you know, community, you got a lot more, you know, support, uh, social support and others, uh, you know, then you're just on your own when you're suffering. Is there is there such a mechanism being studied there? Yeah, social support seems to be a very, very important part of the mechanism. But many people over, I guess, overestimate how much of the effect, about 25% of the effect of religious involvement on mental and physical health is due to social factors and also the, the type of social support that people derive from religious communities is of a different nature 
than the social support people get from, say, being part of a sports club or being part of uh, any kind of secular general club. And the idea is that there is an additional reason that religious people have for supporting each other other than the, you know, the social exchange reason. In general, the social exchange hypothesis is that, you know, as long as you scratch my back, I'm going to scratch your back. But once you've stopped scratching my back, you know, I might scratch your back for a little while, but then, you know, you're not scratching my back. So I, I've got other stuff to do. <laughs> but with religious people, they tend to scratch people's backs a lot longer, even, even when you don't want them to scratch your back, they're scratching it. Uh, part of it is because of the belief system. It's a, you know, love thy neighbor as thyself. You don't do it just because you're scratching your back. You do it because God said that this was something you needed to do. So I have to finish up. We always finish up with our magic wand question. So we ask uh, if you could wave your magic wand question and it's, it's, for, for each of you to respond. So um, Dr. Deckman, I'll start with you. If you could wave your magic wand to create your dream study that once and for all would decide if prayer works, what would be your dream study? And I'm putting you on the spot because Dr. Koenig has time to think about his dream study. Um, <laughs> so you have to go first. Gosh, um, that's a really hard question. Um, I mean, I think that a dream study, of course, would involve a really large representative probability-based sample, of course. Um, but I think it would also involve having more deliberate focus groups and talking with people about the mechanisms by which prayer and religiosity um, is linked to their, their views on a variety of things. I tend to be interested, of course, in the political and cultural dimensions of that as opposed to the health benefits. But I think um, survey research is wonderful, but it does have some limitations. I think qualitative research oftentimes is, is not representative. And so there are also limitations with that. But my favorite research, I think, tends to look at both of those items together. And so if you had focus groups that were intergenerational, um, that you know, looked at Americans from different regions of the country, um, that considered gender and gender identity and sexual orientation. There's all kinds of things that you could slice and dice data on to look at those sorts of measures, both from a qualitative and a quantitative perspective. So I'd be interested in seeing that. And then to add on to that, I think one of the biggest challenges as social scientists we have in measuring religion is this very large group of people who are religiously unaffiliated. Some people have talked to them as being religious, but, but not religious, but spiritual. Um, how can we kind of better capture those measures to see what influence they have on um, our civic health, on our attitudes about democracy, our attitudes about a, a whole range of political issues? Um, you know, we are just beginning to uncover, for example, even though we say that we find now um, you know, at least one in four Americans are not religiously affiliated. It doesn't mean that all of them are atheists. Some of them are. Um, but atheists look very, very different from people that have just tapped out of religion altogether. And so as social scientists, I think we need to have better measures of what those different categories of being unaffiliated are um, and what they mean for our politics and our culture and culture and our future. Yes. And, you know, I totally agree that we need to use the combination of both the qualitative and the quantitative research to make sense of the findings. Part of it has to do with, you know, with large studies, 
you can only collect very superficial information? And how do you interpret the findings then if you don't have some qualitative interviews with people who are involved in these studies? So the mixed methods is a very important study. And certainly the prospective studies that follow individuals, particularly young people over long periods of time, over decades of time, looking at how baseline religious involvement and religious education and coming out of religious families, how that influences long-term health outcomes. Now, (laughs) the ideal study would be one you couldn't do, and that would be a large randomized controlled trial where you randomize a group of people who are, you know, having a really hard time in life, who are just not doing very well mentally, socially. If you were to randomize those to a a group, a control group that that was involved in, say, a, a book reading club or some other kind of social activity where you kind of control the social uh, aspects and those who become involved in a religious group and actively participate in it and then follow those that this would be have to be a long-term randomized controlled trial where you would follow them for a year, maybe five years down the line, be incredibly expensive. But it what it would do, it would provide some evidence for causality. And that's, that is the big issue here. Is it religion that is enhancing health or is it health that is in, enabling people to become more religiously involved? So a lot of this probably is bi-directional particularly with regard to religious attendance, because you have to be, you know, have to be healthy enough to get to religious organization. They have to be healthy enough to participate in those groups. But this, this idea of a randomized controlled trial where you could actually randomly assign people to become either more religiously involved or not religiously involved and then follow them over time to see if there's any difference in their health outcomes. I think that would tell us a lot. Wow. Uh, who would have thought about, you know, a podcast on religious study turned out to be the best lecture on causal inference, a clinical trial, confounding factors. And uh, so thank you to both of you. This has been uh, truly not only just fascinating, but a very educational. And I think, uh, as you all know, that we hear about data science all over the place, but the religious study is not one of the popular topics. Uh, and and um, so uh, I hope that our listener today gets a really a good picture of how data science is being used in uh, religious study. And all the problems you mentioned are the, are the same for other studies, right? The causal inference is always the hardest one. Uh, I also want to mention that uh, Harvard Data Science Review itself, according to data we have, we have reached to um, every country, every region in the world, except one place, which is Vatican City. So what I'm hoping <laughs> is that with the help of this episode and with the pray from all the listeners that we will reach to Vatican City finally, because clearly data science should help everyone, including helping God. So thank you very much for this fascinating and educational podcast. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Harvard Data Science Review Podcast. To stay updated with all things HDSR, you can visit our website at hdsr.mitpress.mit.edu or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the HSDR. A special thanks to our producers, Rebecca McLeod and Tina Toby-Mack and assistant producer, Ari Frick. 
If you liked this podcast, don't forget to leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been the Harvard Data Science Review Podcast, everything data science and data science for everyone. Thanks so much for listening.